This is Michael Easley in Context. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Tony Wood, you are a songwriter. Um, I am. But you didn't start out that way. Tell us a little bit about your your journey and how you became yeah. a songwriter. I started out um, in high school age dreaming about the possibility of that. I came to, to faith in about sixth or seventh grade, grew up in a small tobacco farming town in Virginia. Um, youth choir. Did you work in the tobacco fields? I found every way possible in a small town to avoid working <laughs> Good in tobacco man. fields. Um, <laughs> But but church and youth choir was very alive, very vibrant part of, of what was going on for me. Really, if you wanted to have any fun in the summer, go to Six Flags or Carowinds or anything like that, you had to be in the youth choir to be on the be on the choir tour. So that so got, they would that, go and sing at the yeah. at these local churches, and then oh by the way, one yeah. day and so that kind of got me roped in to uh-huh. that. But um, really, during high school, started loving music at that time. And but there was a different attraction for you. It wasn't just it wasn't just Six Flags. I, b- I believe what you're getting at is true. There is the only one reason a teenage boy picks up a guitar, sits down at a piano, and sings what he's feeling at that point, and that's to get girl. Okay, let's just get that on the record. And 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 that's still true. It's funny. Every Christian songwriter I know admits the first songs that they wrote were bad pop songs. But then at some point else along the way, as you, as you move toward the things that are stirring deep within you, um, like I did, I started just things that I was thinking about, sermons that I was hearing, things I was reading in Scripture finding their way into song. A, a different part for me at that time that I knew really well was I had didn't want to perform at all. Don't have a performing bone whatsoever. But I started finding uh, buddies in church and in youth group who would sing songs that I were writing. And my church, gosh, Michael, so grateful for a, a, a small church, but still gave me opportunity to on a, on a Sunday morning or Sunday night, Wednesday night, to have a friend stand up and talk about a song I was writing and mm-hmm. sing it. Looking back, man, they weren't great songs, but God used them in mm-hmm. my life. And people at that time affirmed something within me with, with what the song meant to them. I once had a, a friend in a, a major publishing label uh, tell me that he, they received 5,000 unsolicited manuscripts a year and this is in book publishing, that's got to be a hundred times more, maybe a thousand times more in the I, song. I've seen the boxes in the publishing companies that sit there unopened. It's funny how, how God kind of used even rejection letters in my story because the letters came back saying the music was not good at all and the words were marginally better. <laughs> and You still have some of those? I I do. And and I've even on occasion, I I know a couple of the guys now that that wrote some of those. So that's been fun. Um, But I could dig a compliment out of those if I had to. Oh, yeah. Marginally. um, Yeah. But realizing that, that what excites me most is the message of the song. I I could functionally write music if, if I had to. But I... But the passion of when I lay in bed at night and think about it is, what is the message and how do we artfully say this in mm-hmm, a way mm-hmm. that uh, does something in the heart of somebody out there in America? Where can this truth intersect with them on their way that uh, turns their eyes off of themselves, turns their eyes to Christ, uh, speaks a truth that gives them some hope and encouragement in the midst of what they're facing now. And so I kind of at that point stopped writing music and just thought, I bet somewhere out there in America, 
there's a, there are other guys who got letters saying, your music is better than your words. Mm-hmm. And so if we just kind of go with our strength, I thought maybe in the goodness of God, he will bring us together in a room someday. So I just kind of went with writing words to songs on paper so that ultimately when I did the crazy thing and just moved here to Nashville, not knowing anyone, just kind of the, the big adventure for my wife and I, he's been so good and so faithful, continuing to introduce me to those mm-hmm. people. So I could walk in and go, hey, how about this? Did he, could you write a melody to these words? Let's go back a little bit. I, I took a turn. So you're you're growing up in a small tobacco town mm-hmm. and a small church, choir and, and tours and whatnot. How do you get from uh, interest in college? And then you went to seminary for I a did. period of time. I did. Because I had two loves. I loved youth ministry also. Uh, that I, I couldn't commit to the songwriting thing. Nothing in that made sense. So go with, go with the other love. So prepare for that. But even in the midst of college and seminary... Um, I, w- I love going to lectures, hated writing papers and all, mm. all of that, but would do those quickly in the semester, knock them out so that I would have hours alone to go sit in the library with just a blank notepad and just write words to songs. Mm. And it became clear to me during that time, I was like, wait a minute, this is, this is either really a part of who I am or it's an incredibly unhealthy obsession <laughs> that I'm not, I'm not shaking. Um, because I, I kept making time in, in, in a crowded schedule to write. Let's pause right there. Someone just heard that, and they're going, okay, I've got this crazy. Is it, is it an obsession, or is it something I've pursued? It, it's scary for me to encourage that in somebody, because there wasn't much to encourage it in me, but it wasn't going away. And I was praying, I mean, for a long time. I I. I loved it enough that I remember praying at about 17, God, could there ever be a time when all I do is write songs about mm-hmm. you? Um, and that was crazy. And it didn't, it didn't happen for another 15 or 16 years. I, I worked for a long time on church staff while still writing songs. Then there became a point where, um, in my mid-30s, where I had a, a piece that if I never lead another lock-in for students in my life. I really am okay with it. Um, That's just wisdom. That's maturity. That just happened in the mid-30s after enough years of doing it. You had your quota of pizza and Pepsi by then. I really did. Mm -hmm. I really did. um, But had begun to have some really nice things happen in the songwriting world, some songs on records, some songs on radio. Um, There's got to be a point, and you and I have a mutual friend who has built a company and he hires young people, and they think, you know, this is the world. And he, he reminds them, this is a 25-year overnight success. Yeah, yeah. Another friend of ours who's a prolific author, written over 200 books, and he's often asked, how do you write so many books? And he goes, one page at a time and to deadline. <laughs> That's <laughs> it. Because if you can write a page at a time and meet a deadline, now, eventually, will that work? No guarantees, but you ha- but at some point, I think Peter Drucker said, anytime you see anybody with a degree of success, there was at once a brave choice along the way. And, and I'm aware of several kind of what I consider brave choices along the way, at least to see. It's funny, when I was in seminary, I was still writing a lot, nowhere to go with my songs, just mm-hmm. nobody to show them to, um, and was, was amassing quite a pile 
of sheets of typed paper in a box under my bed. And, and I came to realize I can live with rejection. I really can. If, if I don't measure up, okay, I'm fine with that. But I could not live with the not knowing, hmm. um, with the at least not trying. Okay, if the door is shut, but the thought of being 50 and having that box tucked away under my bed and going... I wonder if I should have tried that. Mm-hmm. That I almost became claustrophobic about that. It's just like I couldn't breathe thinking of the frustration. The box of that. under the bed, were, was there fear in what people were going, not, not rejection, but mm-hmm. fear in the response to the lyric? <laughs> well, that's still the reality because okay. any, any, kind of, any kind of writing is putting something on paper of saying, I have felt this way. And you almost very sheepishly hold that out for somebody and say, have you ever felt this way? No, you're uh, crazy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, or absolutely I felt that way. Well, but yeah. but that's still consumerism too. It's out there yeah. it's out there in the marketplace saying do you feel like this? No, I don't feel enough to pick up that book on the shelf or to to pick up that CD. So it is that thing. It's just a lot more vulnerable at first when it's one person across the desk from you who's the publisher who has no reaction to it. Just nothing move on to the next to the next person so was it one of the um, those lists i think david frost put them together with uh, D- fred astaire his first audition mm. you know can dance a little <laughs> yeah <laughs> something like yeah that. And, and anybody with any degree of success has those moments behind them. humanly speaking we're not just talking about perseverance and hard work and keep writing and keep cranking it out um, you and i as followers of christ have got to say at some point this is a spiritual journey so you leave small town Virginia, uh-huh. you pack up your worldly possessions, you bring your young precious bride Terry yeah. with no contacts, no nothing, right. and move to Nashville. Yeah. And remember watching our friends drive away in the U-Haul, shutting the door to the apartment and going, wow, I wish we had somebody to call and say, hey, can we go out and grab coffee or something like that? No cell phones, no nothing in those days. No. You were You were coming to an apartment? Yeah. That's that's all we had, and looking for jobs, beginning to look for temp jobs at first, and then hoping to maybe get on a church staff, and then to maybe f- learn about the world of contemporary Christian music. I mean, I, I knew from the records that I was listening to, but but what would it take to actually get a song on a record? What year was this? 1988. 88. Since 1988, you have written over 600 songs that have made it to either uh, being being uh, printed, published, recorded. Some of the groups, individuals, bands, Point of Grace, Michael W. Smith, Sela, For Him, Sandy Patty, Natalie Grant, Avalon, Jenny Owens, Mark Schultz, Brian Luttrell, on and on it goes. Uh, Matt Redman, Stephen Curtis Chapman, who's ever heard of him, uh, Chris August, Mark Hall, Casting Crowns, Group One Crew. Uh, uh, oh, I'll stop. It would take 10 minutes to read the list. Um, when you when you look back at that list, do you have any idea? Overwhelming gratitude and um, that God takes us beyond what we could dream. I that that excites me because um, within that list of names and and the others is such a variety stylistic of who they are. And the individual ministries that they are called to, the churches that some one of the, well, those artists will be in is wildly different from the church that, that, that another one will be in. So to me, it's like learning a lot of different languages. 
what is their musical language? What is their lyrical language? What do they talk about? Um, and, and how can I serve them? That's a lot of, that's how I view what I do. I want to serve the artist well. Um, but also through that, I want to serve the body well, because with every song, when we sit down to write, my, I sat with a writer and a young artist this morning and my mindset going in is, um, okay, tell me, tell me about your story. Let, what's God laying on your heart? Because for an artist to be sitting in a writing mode right now is to go on a record and then they'll live with those messages for about another 10, uh, about another two years out on the road, singing them night after night. But also, I want to know, what does this mean to a lady in Washington, D.C., who will be riding along and hear this message on her radio? And what does this mean to a college kid in Birmingham who will hear it? And what about a couple driving somewhere in Las Vegas, and this is the song that might come on the radio? Where does this intersect with them? So I don't walk into the writing room one morning and am not aware of those people, mm. because the... Cause it's different. If you're preaching a sermon, you know that the specific people you will be speaking to, you'll look them eyeball to eyeball. A thing about songwriting that really worked for me is just by being a real introvert. Um, I get to I get to work on it by myself or, or with somebody in there, but then let it go out there into the country and see what it's going to do. And I may not, I may never hear from the people. But we've got some great stories where you do tell that you've heard some of these things, even from around the world yeah. that, that we'll touch on. But uh, for those of you who don't know Tony Wood, he is the epitome of an introvert. You'd rather be alone. <laughs> you work at what, 2 a.m.? I your, do. Your I'm best still time. Up. Yeah. Um, so you're a little bit. When you look at songwriters, and I know this is like saying, what are pastors like? It's a dumb question at some level. But uh, are, are many songwriters that way? They're more introverted. They want to do their craft sort of alone. I think most creatives are. I think a lot of pastors really are. And yet there's this ability to summon up the energy for the moment on stage. I, I know a lot of artists that that's their wiring. 27 number one songs. Uh, on your website, I was flabbergasted. Uh, in 2008, nine singles in five months. That was crazy. Just one of those seasons along the way that kind of makes up for the other seasons when you couldn't get a song on the radio <laughs> to buy sing. A <laughs> yeah. You also talk about your writing with Point of Grace. February 2006 was a special time for you. That was a fun time. They, um, they've they been so good through the years to record a number of songs, but they were invited to the presidential prayer breakfast and um, performed one of the songs that I, that I was writing that mo- morning and um, with with Bono of U2 sitting at the table with him and uh, saw the, the footage on C-SPAN that morning, watched it, and as they finished singing, there's Bono applauding. So I bought that footage from C-SPAN just <laughs> to watch just to watch back every now <laughs> Absolutely. and then. Absolutely. When you're discouraged, then pop that tape in there. Hey, um, talk about how some stories you've heard back from songs you've written. As a writer and as a guy who's kind of holed up in small rooms, I don't get nearly the volume as to what artists get because artists are standing in a line every night and people coming up for an autograph and they'll tell them the stories. But along the way, some some artists have been so good to pass on emails that they got or what somebody told them on a line. But you, you write songs 
on faith that this message could give somebody hope or encouragement. And so there are along the way emails about this was this was this dark time of my life, losing a child, considering suicide, out of out of work for a long time, and this song came on the radio. And you know, I, I trust that that's going to happen because you know that it still happens for me. Mm-hmm. I still uh, a couple of weeks ago was something I was dreading walking into and turned the radio on and there was, there was somebody singing this truth and it just hit me in the heart and mm-hmm. I thought, I am not going to be fearful about this. I'm going to walk on in the confidence of the Lord. Uh, so, I, so I do it and I haven't lost, with after all these years, the, the sense that God still really uses a well-written Christian pop song at the right moment to do to do something really good within the spirit of somebody. It's fascinating as a preacher, as a teacher, you're writing a message, and um, you talk about an audience. I've got this bell curve in my head mm-hmm. that I'm always thinking about who is listening and who might listen later. Um, as a songwriter, you've got how, how many words in a three minute song? Mm, probably one twenty to one fifty, okay. I would guess. Yeah, and with and, a lot of repetition. With a lot of repetition. But what you accomplish with that repetition and word crafting put to music, the average listener might hear twice and memorize 60% of it, 80% of it. And and maybe within a handful of listenings, they'll know that lyric perfectly. And and for for some of them you're just that background noise on the radio, so they never right. they they never know what you are. But then there are others where people own it, and to see, um, to to know that songs that are, are on the radio or on an artist record may be sung by other people in their church as their solos. Well, you in an average body, you've got eighty percent who've never listened to Christian radio, so that's a way for them to hear this message. Um, there are some crazy clips on YouTube of some songs that I've written that. It's just 13-year-old, 14-year-old girls sitting in their bedroom singing them in, into their laptop, making a, little, making a little video. And some of them are so horribly bad <laughs> that it's almost laughable. And yet, even, even in that, you know, I, I, when my kids will bring them to me and watch it, it's like we, I would never laugh or make fun of it because this girl is owning this right, song. Right. This is heart. a song that she has played 200 times alone in her bedroom, and these are words that are mm. sticking with her. Mm. It's like, man, that's a beautiful thing. Mm. I love that I get to do well, that. Well, and on the rare occasion that little girl becomes a musician in her own right one day, yeah. that'll be gold footage they'll show. <laughs> it's some crazy thing, and it was it was horrible, but it was perfect Oh, yeah. because it was all the development of Again, that's just the goodness of God yeah. for that song connected with her, with something real with where she was. Is it too simple to say you are you are a poet? There are poetic elements of what I do, but a poet is a, a poem is different from a lyric. A poem exists to be read. You read it in your own cadence, in your own time. A lyric exists in a pretty set cadence tied to melody. So there are elements, but it's a little bit of a different thing. Mm-hmm. I wanted to write very much um, the unchanging character of God in a volatile world. It's called Even If the Healing Doesn't Come. Sometimes all we have to hold on to is what we know is true of who you are. So when the heartache hits like a hurricane, that could never change who you are. And we will trust who you are, even if the healing doesn't come. And life falls apart and dreams are still undone. You are God. You are good. 
the forever faithful one, even if the healing doesn't come. Tony, you have just written a book, a parent's book of prayers. So if I'm a parent uh, and my children are kind of grown, still practical for me? The way that I wrote it, I think it is. It's, I think as a parent, there are things that we all very easily off the cuff pray for our kids. Safety, protection, blessings, virtues, friendships, things like that. What I wanted to get at is covering those because I kept a list as my four girls were growing up, a notebook beside my Bible every morning that I would be intentional to pray for them with these various things. But it was a chance to um, add in some other things that, golly, maybe you don't pray them every day, maybe but once or twice a year, but to talk about uh, family strongholds that they'll have to deal with, their future mate. God, would you let them have a great work ethic? May they be quick to profess their faith. Would you guide their relationships with their siblings or or bullies? May they have a tender heart that's quick to confess sin. May they have an obedient spirit. all of all of these things. So it's a different topic based on scripture, one a day for 365 days. You start with a verse and then it's a very brief prayer. Very brief prayer that I hope mm-hmm. at best it's a jump start. Yep. It gets it gets who gets whoever's reading it off praying their own prayer specifically for their child. One thing Cindy and I um, have tried to pray for our kids over the years, Tony, is their character, not their performance. Yeah. You know, it's who they are, initiative, you know, yeah. servant oriented, kind hearted, whatever. Um, and, uh, because not, if, if God takes care of that on a, on a deep level in them, the way that it plays out, it's going to look different from child to child, but you're going to be pleased with now, it. Now, <laughs> protecting our, our kids here. Uh, we've all had our struggles with our four children. Sure. Uh, your four girls and, and my three girls and one son. Uh, at times, do you just uh, throw your hands up and say, God, I don't know what to pray anymore for my kids? Yeah, some specific times. And it's, and it's really only in that place of desperation that you really do pray. Who feels adequate to be a parent? For some people, that's the first place in life where they've been aware of their inadequacy enough to really cry out to God, starting a young family. Um, and for others, they're wise enough to know from the beginning of when once they find out that they're pregnant, it's like, oh my gosh, what go. have I gotten myself into now? I am I'm treading in the deep end and, and cry out to God. So having children motivates passionate praying. It, it also, one of my friends says, uh, uh, parenting is the last chance God gives you to grow up. <laughs> <laughs> that, that seems real true. And the, the, etern- the just ongoing desperation of, you know, even as they become young adults uh, and you cheer them on, it's like, wow, I love what you're doing, but why don't you do this instead? Yeah, you know, yeah. and you got to let go. And at that point, you know, my prayer at this juncture is, is so often been, Lord, I've done 100,000 things wrong as a parent. I know you love them more. Mm-hmm. You're the perfect father. That's it. Would you be the parent that I can never be to my kids? And because you don't have the ability to move the heart of your child, mm-hmm. to change the heart, that's that's God's power there alone. Boy, we sure saw that in the book of Ezra, that, that it's God that turned the heart of the king. And he'll do that in our children. There's a mom or dad listening to you or me right now, and they're just, they're done. I mean, they've got a son or daughter that's just broken their hearts so many times, that's lied, that's stolen, that's hurt, that's maybe been violent, that's been in or out of jail, that's into some bad stuff. What would you tell them? Boy, 
heard someone say recently, until you're convinced that you can't change your child's heart, you're not going to take prayer seriously enough. And it's at that point where you commit them to God as the God who is the pursuer of his people, that his Holy Spirit is pursuing them, even in the midst, the darkness of where they are. He's coming after them, and he has good things in store for them. Keep loving and keep praying. Tony Wood, songwriter, author, a parent's book of prayers. You can find out more about it on the website. Tony, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Michael. If you have questions or comments, please let us know at michaelincontext.com. Follow Michael on Twitter at Dr. Easley. Thank you for listening to Michael Easley in Context.